What's up, everybody? Thanks for listening to the Fatim and Friends podcast. I'm your host, Adam Tiller. I want to say thanks to everyone listening. As a reminder, please follow us on Instagram at FNFpod. Also follow our cartoon on Instagram at Beefcake and Butterball. Please share this podcast with a friend to help us reach new listeners. For all their content, go to adamtillercomedy.com. All right, let's get started with some reads from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the kooky sound effects of morning radio. Nothing makes the morning the morning like the kooky sound effects of morning radio. That's because morning radio sound effects are just so kooky. That's kooky. And fun. (laughs) And it's the morning, you know. And traffic. In the morning! And without all these distracting noises, the truth is, most DJs would probably require talent. But thank God they don't. All thanks to the kooky sound effects of morning radio. This episode is also brought to you by networking. In life, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. But this general rule, you still have to know. Because there's not someone who knows that everyone can know, you know? Anyway, this is exactly why networking is so important. With networking, you use other people to better your position in life. Now, in most situations, this behavior could be considered exploiting another person. In networking, it's totally fine, because it's just part of your network. And really, who has time to feel guilty when that guy Steve just walked in? And and what did you say he does again? For what company? Get out of my way. I gotta go talk to him. Steve! Remember, life's not about being a good person. It's about exploiting relationships for personal and financial gain. All with networking. It's been a short ride, but man, it's been a crazy one. The shit we seen and overcame and all of it has made us some hell of a bunch of kids of stories for the ages of how the hell we got here. You can read it in the pages of resistance. We some poems that we left along the way. Every day is something new. I see the look on mama's face. I know this world is sick and it's twisted. The kids never listen. My prince in the system and bent on a pistol. I never seen the music, but he pulled it out a couple times. We talked him down from hitting And that was Travis Thompson with the intro music. My guest today was featured on the TV show Life Below Zero on National Geographic and has appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience. This is also his second appearance on the Fatim and Friends podcast, and we're lucky to have him. I'm excited to welcome Glenn Villeneuve. Welcome back. Thank you for having me back, Adam. Good to be here. Yeah, I, I like your new setup. You, uh, We're recording both onto YouTube and on audio only on the podcast, but last time you had... A nice backdrop, and I see it still in the backdrop, but you get a little depth going, some wood paneling. It looks good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm working. Those are actually logs, solid wood all the way through the wall from the inside to the outside. Wow. Um, Did you build that house? No. This one here I just purchased last summer in August, a big upgrade to the property. I basically been expanding over the years and buying up my neighbors, so this was bordering my place and my neighbor decided to move and um it was the 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 time to do it i needed some more space and i also am modernizing this is the first place i've had in 17 years where i have a toilet where i have plumbing (laughs) 
running water. So I always had electricity here in Fairbanks, but the cabins that I have built here myself are very small. I did all the work myself, carried the logs on top of my shoulders and didn't didn't have plumbing or anything too complicated in them. How many people are So this is a big big upgrade. Are living in that house. It's you um your partner and then how many kids do you guys have living with you? We each have our own we each have our own house. I got a little compound. Here, oh so wow. I I actually have now eight acres of property and five different cabins on the property just for my family's use. And uh, this is the one I live in. Trisha lives right next door with Amelia and Agatha. Mm -hmm. And we use, the other ones are very small cabins, the original cabin I built and another one that's only 160 square feet, but we use the cabins for various purposes. So I believe that entirely based on everything (laughs) we've talked about in the past. Uh, That's cool though. So it's, it's in Fairbanks? Yes, kind of the outskirts of town. It's a wooded area, mm-hmm. uh, about five miles from downtown. But Fairbanks is a real small city, so when you get out here, it's it's uh, pretty relaxed. A little dirt road. I'm at, at the end of a dead-end dirt road, a few tenths of a mile off of the bigger paved road. You, it you, feels it feels like you're in the woods here, really, but you, know, you can be over at Costco or Walmart in 15 minutes. Yeah, that last time we talked, you extended an invite to me to come up to visit you, and I definitely want to do that. I got to figure out kind of once I get the second shot for the vaccine to come up your way. But um, you know, I I'd love to see all of this in person. Like, I I got a pretty decent camera that I could bring and and you know make a little trip out of it. So. I'm not too far from you, too. Like Seattle's like a five and a half hour flight, so I I think I I haven't yeah, made it yet, so. but yeah, it's not that far. But if you come, we got to make a trip to the Brooks Range too, Adam. I got yeah. an airplane, so from here it's less than two hours up to my camp in the Brooks Range. This this was the thing I was talking to someone about this, and they're like, you know, Glenn will invite you up there to do that, but there's a lot of things that he's just accustomed to like, you know, just that you don't think twice about. And I was watching the show and you built like a mosquito suit and I've heard like the mosquitoes and the bugs in Alaska in the summertime are brutal. So I'm, I'm not like Glenn jr. Okay. Like I, I'm going to need some like TLC up there if I go. So uh, just a forewarning, like I'm not a Bush man, but I will try my best up there. Some people do have a hard time. I've I've taken people up to my camp that were planning to stay for several days. Mm-hmm. And the next morning after they got there, they said, hey, we want to head back to Fairbanks today. <laughs> <laughs> they loved it. They thought it was a great view, but it, it was just a little too brutal for them. And what was it true. that like, what got them? Well, these were folks who weren't even used to camping out and, and it was cold. It was summer, you know, but it was cold. It probably got down to almost freezing or something at night and just uh, sleeping on the ground in a sleeping bag, I think, and being used to living uh, in, in more comfortable circumstances. They figured one night was enough. They'd had the experience. They yeah. know what it was about. <laughs> sounds like my mom. Uh, <laughs> that, that definitely sounds like something my mom would be would do but anyway um before we get too side 
tract. No, no, I, no toilet too. You'd be surprised, but a lot of people <laughs> have a real hard time. I've seen people go for days without pooping just because they're, they don't have a toilet to poop. In. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Like, do you think it's, it's just the, like the squatting motion is like obscure I, I for people? I, I don't know what it is, but I, I have noticed that some people really have a hard time. I mean, if you've never ever gone out in the woods and, and, lived like that without a toilet without a comfortable thick mattress to sleep on at night you know it's an adjustment not everybody has a lot of people have never gone hiking in their life i mean i was really surprised when trisha moved up here from boston to live with me you know we hardly um, knew each other in person we got to know each other long distance over the telephone but um had her up at the lake one day and uh you know we'd been living together for a while and we hiked up a mountain and when we got to the top of the mountain she said it was the first time in her entire life, she'd ever climbed a mountain. And I was amazed because I was climbing mountains from the time I was a little kid. Uh But, you know, there are a lot of people, they live in the city and they're not around mountains. They never climbed one. There's a lot of people that never camped out. A lot of people that never had to deal with real thick mosquitoes. (laughs) Oh, for sure. That's like, there's a lot of stuff I can handle, but like just the kind of the nagging of mosquitoes is what like yeah, i don't know just the swatting and the itching and like i i don't like them in my ears and like in my nose and like it, it just it gets me but besides well, I, they're, I, they're they're bad they yeah. are really bad sometimes i mean for anybody you just have to become inured to it but it's tough sometimes dealing with the bugs up here for sure well um i for this episode we're it's gonna be uh a little interesting like we we got some questions from people from reddit and then some listeners of mine and some people from like facebook and instagram that are fans of yours so uh, i got a list of questions to ask you and then uh some stories hopefully from you but it's gonna be kind of loose it might get off the rails a little bit but we're gonna have fun um the first question is survival related what is the most dangerous wildlife encounter that you've experienced over the years? And I'm just going to crack a window here. Cause I'm, it's a little, the mosquitoes are bad in here. I still got a lot of snow outside here. Oh, wow. Well, um, I lived for eight years of my life, very close to potentially dangerous animals, grizzly bears, wolves, even moose can be potentially dangerous. And during those years living at my camp in the Brooks Range, it was very common to interact with these animals. There were a lot of times over the years that grizzly bears walked right into my front yard within feet of the cabin, sometimes rubbed on the cabin. Um, Wolves would show up and, and walk around the yard sometimes. I remember one day I was standing out back taking a leak on a tree there and, uh, All of a sudden, I heard something, and a wolf walked up within 25 yards of me while I was standing there. So I've had a lot of interactions, both right there in the yard, but also out hiking in the mountains and the forest, running into bears, wolves, wolverines, uh, moose. But almost always, those interactions are really uneventful. Take a grizzly bear, for example, when they smell you or see you, most of the time they just want nothing to do with you. All they want to do is put distance between you and them, and they take off in the other direction. 
but things can go differently in certain circumstances. And sometimes a bear might realize you're there and just act kind of indifferent and just keep doing what it's doing and hanging around, even though you're pretty close. And then other times I've had bears that definitely know I'm there. They smell me, they see me and they decide they want to get a closer look and they approach. And, you know, a couple of times I've had cameramen with me when that happened and it made for some really good TV. We had bears come in within 40 yards or so, maybe even a little closer, just checking us out. Um, there's certain situations where it can be even more dangerous, where you surprise an animal. Um, usually it doesn't happen, but occasionally people get attacked by bears up here and occasionally people get killed. And one potentially dangerous situation is if you stumble on a bear that's feeding on a kill, it's got food there. It might act aggressively to protect it. Mm-hmm. And that's when people have gotten into a lot of trouble. Um, one year I had killed a moose in the fall and my camera crew had been up there with me and filmed that. And we wrapped up that episode. They took off. I was there by myself. And I always like to go back to the kill sites and check on things. And there's always a gut pile there and some scraps that get left behind. Inevitably, sooner or later, something big shows up to clean those up. Mm-hmm. And I like to keep track of what's going on and sometimes get a chance to see some big scavenger. Um, why is that? So I was, why is it that I like to see that? Yeah. Is it just interesting well, it's, seeing it, it? It's, it's fascinating. I mean, I've seen so many interesting things by going back to kill sites. I've seen packs of wolves. I've seen wolverines, grizzly bears, um, you know, that you normally wouldn't get to see that close or watch for that long because of their feeding on a kill and, mm-hmm. and just learning their behavior better, understanding, getting, getting, uh, images, you know, I take pictures of animals in those situations, shot some video. So this year I'm there by myself and every day I would walk to this place where I'd killed the moose and check on things and nothing happened for several days. A week went by and nothing big showed up at all. And, you know, it's getting into October, early October, the bears are about to go into hibernation there. Um, but I thought there was still a chance that might get some activity at that kill site. So one day I was walking up there and this particular spot where I killed the moose was in a bit of a depression behind this little knoll. And there was also spruce forest there and there was some brush. And unfortunately you couldn't actually see the gut pile there on the ground until you got really close to it, about 25 yards away. And I was walking up there that morning and like every other morning. And as I got to the top of that little knoll, I peer down over the other side and there's a big grizzly bear laying on top of the guts. And he immediately stands up and I was carrying my rifle. So I just brought it to my shoulder Just as a precaution, I didn't know what was going to happen. He could decide to charge me. I was really close, 25 yards away from this bear that's feeding on this gut pile. How tall are they standing up? Um, Well, he was standing on all four legs at that point. He didn't get up on his back legs. But um, 
No, he was a good sized bear. I mean, he might have been, if you killed him and measured the hide, it might have been seven feet long or something like that. I don't Kareem know. Kareem exactly. Abdul Jabbar um, high. Like, the, if, yeah, they, the bears in the Brooks Range are not as big as in some areas of Alaska where they feed on salmon, like down in the south. But, you know, it was, this was a big, older male grizzly bear. And, um, after this podcast, you can check out some pictures of my gut, but, uh, I just held my gun there to my shoulder and there was no real option that I was going to retreat because if I backed up just a little bit, I wouldn't even be able to see him anymore or see what was going on since I was on top of this little knoll, which was exactly the spot that I had shot the moose from. Um, so I just start talking to him, which is most often the best strategy to do. Uh, when you talk to a bear, they realize you're a human and you know, if they're not acting aggressive to you, you don't start yelling and hollering. You just talk to them in a normal voice. If they're a little bit aggressive, you kind of up your aggression level. But usually if you talk to a bear, they will go away. So I started talking to him, but being that he was on that food pile, I really wasn't sure what was going to happen. And what he did just you looked say? At me for, hmm? What did you say to him? <laughs> what do you say to a bear? Oh, I, uh, I don't know. I probably said something like, Hey bear, uh, it's all right. Just go away. It's okay. Go away. You know, something like that. It's interesting. And, Cause you, the way you describe it, it almost is like this. Like most people, when they think of animals, it's like this separate thing, but it's so much in your environment that like, it's your, you're part of that same community as the bear or I guess environment as the bear. And, it's almost like it. You start thinking about them differently. Like I would never think to talk to a bear like in a regular voice and stuff like that. The last thing I, I would just scream and run. You know, like it it would scare the shit out of me. That's what you got to be careful of because uh, if you run, uh, a bear's a predator. They're used to chasing things, and that might well lead to them chasing you and. There's no way you're going to outrun that bear. You know, they'll be on you in seconds. So yeah, I'm it's not really very important fast not either. To, not, it's really important not to scream and run. But, um, you know, talking to a bear, I mean, that's something that's uh, it, it's commonly um, done. I mean, I, I probably first encountered that idea of talking to bears way back before I came to Alaska when I was taking trips up in northern Canada. You know, the Cree Indians up there. Uh, gave me a lot of information. That's how they would deal with a bear. They have black bears up there, not grizzly bears. But when they see a bear, they talk to the bear and bear goes away and nine times out of 10. So this bear did. He, uh, even though he had food there, he just looked at me and after several seconds, he just turned and he slowly walked away and he disappeared pretty quickly into the trees. I couldn't really see how far he had gone. So I had a game camera with me. And seeing that there was a grizzly bear there, I really wanted to set that game camera up and try to get some footage. I knew he was going to come back. Mm -hmm. He hadn't been there long. So I was a little nervous about it, but I, I walked down that knoll right up to the gut pile. And there's a bear around here somewhere. And I'm all alone out here. I don't have eyes in the back of my head. I'm setting up my game camera. I had a strap and I tied it to a tree just a few feet away from what he was feeding on there. And then I just slowly backed out of there. One mistake I made, because I was a little on edge, 
was that I didn't set the camera up quite right. And I put it at like a low resolution. So the images are a little grainy, mm -hmm. but, uh, I did get the camera set up there and I backed out of there and I went back to my camp and, you know, I've had people tell me, Oh, you're crazy. You know, chasing a grizzly bear off a gut pile like that and going in there and setting up the camera. But, you know, I know there is some risk in that situation. It definitely is a potentially dangerous situation, but I have dealt with bears at things they were eating many times over the years. And I felt confident that it was safe enough for me to put myself in that position. So, and of course I have my rifle, you know, things can happen fast and you don't want to get overconfident just because you have a gun. That's one mistake that people make. And a lot of times the people that do get attacked by bears or killed by bears are bear hunters that have guns or other people that have guns. And, you know, if a bear comes barreling out of the pucker brush at 35 miles an hour and you got your back to him or your gun isn't to your shoulder, I mean, you're not going to have time. How sometimes. heavy are they? Um, I don't really know uh, how heavy a uh, grizzly bear like that is. I've only killed one bear in my entire life, one grizzly, which was right there near my camp. And I didn't weigh it, you know, but it, it, that one was heavy enough that I had a hard time moving him around. I remember trying to roll him into a sled and drag him a little ways to get him in a better position where I was going to actually butcher him. And Just having anything come at you at 35 miles an hour that's that big, it's like, it sounds like a Honda Civic coming at you. Like, it's just uh, such a... I can't imagine when what they, that would feel like. When they really want to move fast, it's just amazing. I, I've run into bears in brush before where the brush was so thick that neither the bear nor I realized we were very close together. And all of a sudden we were within, you know, 15, 20 yards of each other. Wow. And the bear would stand up on its back legs. And that's the first time that i realized as a bear there all of a sudden i see this bear stand right up on its back legs and the brush is you know almost six feet high i can barely see over this thick willow brush and then the bear in that instance it dropped down on all fours and it decided luckily to run the other direction but if it had run towards me even though i had my rifle i went to had a chance how many shots I, I would does not... it usually take to take one down that's coming at you well, if you hit it in the right place, one shot, but I never would have gotten a shot off in that situation. I mean, my rifle was, you know, on my sling over my shoulder and the bear was within 15 or 20 yards, you know, at the most. And um, when that bear took off in the other direction, I couldn't see it because the brush was so tall, but it looked just like a wave on a lake traveling across water. The brush just moved like a wave across this big, long, uh, open area for maybe a hundred yards within just seconds, I could just see this wave moving through the brushes that bear barreled out of there. And if he had headed toward me, I mean, like I say, I wouldn't have had a chance. It wouldn't matter if I had a rifle or not. If that bear wanted to get me in that brush, I would have been toast. That that must have been but, surreal going from such a like adrenaline spiked moment to then seeing such a like cool thing, <laughs> like in terms of yeah. they're like the majestic aspects of these animals, like. It's, I, I find that really interesting that you're in this environment, but you also like appreciate how amazing some of it is. Like I, it, I find that really interesting that you go back to the kill sites to sort of study the behavior and just observe. And is there anything in particular that you learn from doing that? Like that. You learn a lot. You learn a lot about how animals interact and, 
once I got that game camera up there, I learned even more because that camera was watching 24 hours a day for several days after that. What happened was um, I wanted to make sure it was still running good. So I went back up there the next morning and every single morning that I had it set up in order to take the card out, bring it back to my camp and watch what I'd gotten that night and also check on the batteries, see how they were doing. And the footage was phenomenal. I got all kinds of amazing footage. Not only did that grizzly bear show up at that kill site, but a pack of wolves showed up at that site. A wolverine showed up at that site. And I got some amazing footage of a wolf actually biting that bear and chasing it off of some scrap that it was feeding on one day. And that's on my YouTube uh, channel. And I posted it on Facebook if you want to watch that one. But yeah. um, what was really interesting to me was that even though that bear was on that kill site and it knew I was around every day when I get that card, I'd get there and I wouldn't see anything. When I got there, I never with my own eyes saw the bear again. I never saw those wolves. I never saw the Wolverine, but I'd get that card and I'd go back down to my camp and watch it. And every single morning when I walked up there, the bear was right there. But several minutes before I got to the site, he sensed I was coming before I could see him. And he cleared out of there. And the same thing with the wolves, the same thing with the wolverine. They cleared huh. out of there. But I learned a lot. I mean, one thing I learned was that even though the wolves interacted you know, aggressively with that grizzly bear, um, and I caught that where they chased him off of it, they were all there hanging out together for a few days. And there were times when there'd be a wolf right near that grizzly and they wouldn't even be paying attention to each other. <laughs> They'd both just be laying there and licking some blood on the ground or something. There was very little there really. I mean, there's a gut pile, but you know, if, if bear wanted to, he could eat that up in no time. But for whatever reason that everything hung out there, I think there wasn't much else around to eat and everything hung out there for a few days and they ended up just licking the ground clean and there was nothing. There were some scraps of hide I left there too. And they ate that they ate every drop of anything that they could find there and they just hung out there for a few days all these animals and it was really amazing to watch on the, the game camera the interactions yeah i'd i'd love to see some of that and if i like if you can send me that info i would or if it's on your facebook i just i'd love to throw it in the show notes for this episode too because i'm sure yeah. people anyone who hasn't seen it and i do want to just say that question came off reddit from Hadjo Jack, I think is the guy's name. Um, second question kind of goes off that. What is it like to kill a bear? Courtesy of former guest on this podcast, Andrew Patterson. What's it like to kill a bear? Well, um, for me, whether it's a bear I kill or a moose, a caribou, it doesn't really matter. Um, when I go out into the wilderness, the way I do it is I go really deep into it. I really just dispense of anything superfluous, not just in the material realm, but in attitudes um, that might not serve me well there. The way I feel about killing things is different when I'm out there than if I'm living here. In fact, I have no desire to hunt when I'm living in Fairbanks. Even I, I never go hunting here, but when I'm out there, um, 
it's like I become a natural predator. And when I kill something, um, you know, I don't get excited about it. I guess I'm pretty matter of fact about it. I don't do an end field dance or celebrate the way some people do when they kill something, you know. Um, and I don't make a big deal of, uh, you know, some people will have a ritual to give thanks to the animal, something like this. I don't do anything like that. It's just a very matter of fact process. If you're watching me, you'll notice that I don't make much of it outwardly, but uh, my mode of operating out there is just to merge with all the rhythms of nature, the natural cycles. And what's the most fundamental natural cycle for living things? It's the cycle of life and death. And when I kill something, I am taking part in that cycle and I'm living it right there. I'm experiencing what it is to be a living, breathing predator in the natural order of things on planet Earth. So to me, it's a pretty deep experience, but it's something that is also just very nat comes very naturally when I'm in that mode. Mm -hmm. And it's just a very matter of fact thing. It, I mean, it seems like you do have that, that level of respect for it and, you know, you just kind of process it in a different way than, you know, you don't have a dance or, or whatever. Like I, no. <laughs> yeah. But like, it's, it's, it's sort of like an intense way of looking at it, but I get what you mean. It's, um, I, I mean, do you think you, if you were out there, with somebody else that would interfere with your ability to um, be like survive successfully out there. Cause it seems like it really no. is all encompassing. No, I, I was concerned when I started bringing cameramen with me because even though most of the time I lived in the bush, I had my family with me, you know, in the years before I was on LBZ, when I, started bringing cameramen it was the first time i had people with me when i was actually hunting mm -hmm. because my kids were really little then and they would always be with their mom back at the camp so i always hunted alone and i was worried um about the practical aspects of it only having been uh familiar with hunting alone and i'm very methodical i'm very quiet i'm very careful and i thought how am i going to do this with another person around or you know the animal's probably going to notice us, especially somebody trying to film running a video camera that turned out not to be a problem i i really there may have been some situations where i would have had a little advantage alone on the other hand i've been with cameramen who spotted animals before i saw them so, <laughs> and um Usually uh, I would hunt with just one cameraman or with two and it really didn't, didn't interfere. You know, you had to choose them carefully. Now in terms of the psychological aspect of it and being to being able to go into the same state of mind and maybe this other person isn't in that state of mind. It was important to me who I hunted with. I do remember going out with one cameraman early on and it just didn't work out. You know, he, he was uh, a hunter. And uh, what I found out was that a lot of times uh, I liked hunting with non-hunters a lot better than with hunters. Why is that? Um, well, of course, it would depend on the hunter. I've hunted 
uh, with cameramen who were hunters that I enjoyed hunting with. But, you know, a lot of hunters have a very different attitude than I do about hunting. And I mean, I can remember this particular cameraman that I was hunting with that day was just, uh, I don't know. He want, he, he wanted me to shoot a grizzly bear and he thought there'd be a grizzly bear behind every bush kind of attitude. I remember he hadn't been in that area of the Brooks range before and where he had hunted, apparently game was more abundant but uh, we the first day he's like where are the bears where are the bears you know and he's talking about that he brought this bear call with him that he's going to start blowing on and i was like hey don't start blowing on a bear call that's not what i'm here to do i actually wasn't interested in shooting a bear i've only killed one bear and it was in a defensive situation you know uh, uh i was i was interested in hunting caribou i wasn't interested in hunting a grizzly bear but he just thought it would be you know cool or whatever kill a bear it's i don't know it just had a different attitude than i have and you know there's nothing uh wrong with people having all different attitudes about hunting but for myself when i hunt yes i i'm in a certain state of mind and it works best with somebody who can get into that general space with me and i think a lot of people that i was with did and also uh, like I said, I mean, one of my favorite people to hunt with was a cameraman who's a vegan. You know, he doesn't even eat meat and <laughs> certainly doesn't doesn't like hunting. But I really enjoyed hunting with him. Yeah, you know? that's an interesting and he dynamic. He was really appreciative. He was very appreciative of the whole experience and really in tune with the environment. I don't want to like I don't want to pry too much on this, but it is a question that I. I have had after listening, like you talked about this on JRE a little bit. And I, I mean, you're not on the show anymore. And were there, no. were there times in doing TV? Let's keep this pretty broad. I don't want to like name anybody or anything, but like, did you like feel that tension a fair amount and like, feel like you needed to make something that was quote unquote good for TV that went against what your personal beliefs were or like how you chose to live out there? Um, not really in that. First of all, I enjoy making good for TV TV. I really have fun making TV and I love it. It's one, one of my favorite things that I've ever done. So I would say it's my favorite thing I've ever done that was, uh, financially compensated, you know, was making television. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and I like to make it exciting. What didn't work as well for me on LBZ is that um, my life is too complicated for television. And I think that's probably true <laughs> with a, a lot of people on television. But uh, really, you know, a lot of people on these reality shows that are ostensibly biographical and documenting their life. LBZ did a good job of covering one aspect of my life, but it was a, a slice of my life. It wasn't the whole picture at all. And there were certain things that were left out that really are such big parts of my life that it did feel a little disingenuous sometimes when I'd watch it to see, you know, for example, they didn't show my family. Uh, for a long time, even after um, I had a family out there again. When I first started in the show, I was living by myself and, um, you know, it fit into the show really well and people really liked it. So it when fit I, a character. Uh, it, yeah. You know, and, and I, you know, guy I had who no lives alone in the woods. 
Like right. that's a simple no concept for people to consume and yeah. digest. Yeah. I had no intention of continuing to live alone long-term. I mean, I, I enjoyed short periods of my life living alone in the woods, but it wasn't something I was going to do for years. And then, you know, when I started a new family and when they started coming out there, that was something that was decided, you know, we're better off not being the show. And there's some good reasons for that too, because uh, Trisha didn't really want to be on television and you know, it's not really good to do something like that if you're not interested in it because it does involve a lot of work and it, you know, you have to be open about yourself on camera and whatnot. It's not for everybody. So I think there were some good reasons for that. But in my mind, when I was making uh, television, I always thought of it as just showing what's going on right now. Um, but just because of the overall format of that show and what they were, you know, showing with other characters and what the narrator would say here and there, it, it gave people an impression, a lot of people an impression that that was my whole life. What you saw there was my whole life. And that really wasn't accurate. And, um, for me though, uh, you know, uh, the way I dealt with it was by just focusing on what I was doing there at that time and conveying that to the viewers. And I think that came across really well. Yeah. That part of it. Yeah, definitely. It's just when people extrapolated and with, you know, too limited of data drew big conclusions about me that, you know, that's the only thing I did and that I didn't have a family and that, you know, I never came to town. You know, we did eventually show me coming to Fairbanks, but for the first couple of years there, I don't think they showed a lot of that. People got the impression that I went longer without seeing other people and whatnot than I did. Yeah. I think that's sort of the nature of TV though. It's like what you don't see is what you like is is sort of crazy you know like and if you think about that in all aspects of tv it's kind of a daunting thing to consider but it it was weird watching it like having you be part of my family and be like that you know this isn't all he does and i i do want to give you props for a second getting a girl to move from Boston to Alaska. That's a pretty uh, decent accomplishment right there. Like, so, so congratulations on well, that. It's, it's e- easier to find one in Boston that wants to move to Alaska than it is to find one out in the Brooks range. I'll tell you. That's probably <laughs> <Yeah>. true. <laughs> that's, that's wild. Yeah. All right. Yeah, um, it, no, it, it didn't cover my whole life, but on the other hand, you know, there were periods where I went, for more than a year without ever coming to town before I got on television. And there were everything that you ever saw on life blows zero, the crazy stuff. It was stuff that really happened. Um, and sometimes, um, you know, the, the amounts of time I was there in those years, uh, I would come to, to town more often. I started coming to town a few, several times a year, uh, when I was making television, uh, in the past, I, I didn't, because I couldn't afford to, for one thing. Um, so I would only travel at most once a year back and forth. But yeah, I think it it actually did a good job of showing what it is like to be out there living close to the land the way I did for many years. For sure. Well, I got some questions for that, actually. Um, this is from Jesse Anderberg. What did you bring out to camp the first year that you thought you needed 
but didn't actually need? And then what did you forget? And like when you got out there, you're like, man, I wish I would have brought that. Well, the year before I walked from the road over to my lake 60 miles and started living out there long term, I prepared my camp. I built the cabin and I left some supplies with an airplane. I flew that canoe out there that I have, different things I needed, like the ladder to get up on my cash platform. I flew out there with the airplane. And one thing that I left there was a CD player and some music to listen to. Figured I'm going to be out here alone a lot. I'm going to want to listen to music. I like to listen to music in town. So the next summer I walked out there, got to my cabin. And the first four months I was totally by myself before Sylvia joined me out there that winter. And during those four months, I never once put on music. Really? Never. I had zero desire to listen to my CD collection. Um, what what was in the collection? I gotta know this. I don't I don't know what type of music oh, you like. A variety. I, I like a wide range of music, different genres. I, I believe that entire I'm sure I had <laughs> that I, I don't cla- probably classical music, reggae music. I even listened to pop music, uh, you know, electronic dance music, the whole gamut. But um once I got out there, I was just so immersed in what was going on in the natural environment, so tuned in that it just seemed totally incongruous to play recorded music. I just, I had no desire for it at all. Do your senses heighten in that? Like, do you? For sure. For sure. Is it almost like being like on a substance or something like like it, cause it sounds like this euphoric type feeling of just being like part, like fully integrated with that environment. For me, my consciousness changed for sure. I would be so tuned into the natural sounds and the Arctic is a relatively quiet environment. You're not in a rainforest with monkeys and parrots and everything making a big ruckus. It's quiet most of the time, but there are sounds and they're beautiful sounds and you really have to tune in and you start noticing everything that you can hear in that environment. I would sit and just listen to the loons on the lake calling and singing in the night, you know, beautiful, beautiful sounds that would travel for a mile across the lake. Sometimes if they were on the other side, you'd hear them. It's so quiet up there and the wolves howling. I would often hear wolves howling in the distance just the wind blowing through the trees or the waves lapping on the beach. And yes, you become more sensitive to it. Uh, your, your senses, all your senses change. Sense of taste changes when you eat different foods out there and your sense of hearing, you, you become much more attuned. If one little bird would come along that I hadn't heard before, I'd notice it. You know, you notice every different species and everything that's making any kind of sound at all out there was that tough the to, insects was it tough to insects. adjust I can remember back? like when you went what? when you went back to town was that like stimulus overload when you started kind of it's very very noticeable uh when i would live at my cabin in fairbanks for a few months it would seem normal here 
But after being out at the lake for six months or a year and coming back to town, oh, I would notice the traffic noise, even though the road's quite a ways away, you know, you can hear it in the distance. And it would sound really loud when I would come down here. I can remember uh, a few years after uh, this period when I first moved out there, my daughter, Willow Leaf, she was only maybe two years old at the time, something like that. Actually, she was 18 months the first time that she came to town. She had been out there at the lake for 15 months and um, we came down. Uh, she went out when she was three months old. We came down when she was 18 months old. And I can remember just her getting out at the airport, being totally, totally amazed at flat ground because the ground out there is never just smooth and flat. And we were standing on pavement and she kept pointing at it and she could walk so much more easily on it. And then, when we were driving home uh, to our little cabin here in Fairbanks in this taxi, I remember her saying, Daddy, what are all those lights? And it was just, you know, a, not a very big road, but we were meeting cars going the other direction. And she just didn't understand what these bright lights were she'd never seen. And <laughs> so she was born uh, out there? No, she was born in Fairbanks. Okay. We came to town um, before she was born, but uh, when she was three months old, we got dropped off at the lake. We were flown out there in a little bush plane, dropped off and stayed for 15 months. So she was 18 months when we came back down to town. And, you know, it was a big transition for somebody whose brain had never <laughs> processed this stuff. And uh, how was that raising thing a, for an adult, a baby? It's, it's the same for an adult, just not as intense. But you notice the headlights on cars. You notice the sound of the traffic. You do notice that um, it's a different environment. For sure. How how was that raising a kid in like out in the bush? Like was it uh, was that the first like child you raised? in the wild that was like, my my first child. Yeah. Yes. well yeah we learned and when her brother was born a few years later we didn't even wait three months to take him back up there we had, we came down i think about a month before he was born so that he could be born in fairbanks just in case there were any problems um and when he was one month old we got dropped back off up there with the float plane and Wolfsong was out there when he was real little. Yeah. One month. Great names, by the way. But, awesome names. Yeah. Those are, I, I still need to meet them because they're, I mean, if we're second cousins, I don't know technically what, what the title is, but. Um, well, you and I are first cousins. We're, uh, we're first cousins once removed. That's right. So then <laughs> they're second cousins with me. Uh, you know what? I got to look it back up to be a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, raising children in that environment was great. I mean, I think it was great for them. I think that there needs to be a balance, and I wouldn't recommend anybody take their child and raise them out in isolation their whole upbringing. But um, it's a really good environment. It's it's a rich environment in terms of experiences and just uh, opportunities for young children to learn skills and gain confidence, which course they can take with them anywhere no matter what they're doing it's not so much the specific skills of living in the bush but just the general attitude you have to have to live out there i think is really good for kids to grow up with mm -hmm. uh back to the 
the original question. So you said you brought the music, but you didn't yeah. need it. Was there anything that you forgot to bring and you were like, man, I could use me some of well, that? Uh, really, the one thing that I remember, I remember mentioning this the last time we talked was the scope rings to my rifle. When I walked out off the road, I wanted to reduce weight anywhere I could because I already had 90 pounds that I was carrying 60 miles, wow. you know, across the tundra and through the forest. And I had to cross rivers and everything with this huge amount of weight. So one thing I left um, out at the camp the year before was the scope to my rifle. The reason for carrying the rifle walking in was mainly defense. If I did happen to have a, a situation with a bear that I needed it, it would have been real close range. I didn't need a scope, but I left my scope out there in order to hunt with. And when fall came, uh, I realized that I had in all the packing and unpacking misplaced the scope rings and they actually got left in Fairbanks. So I didn't have a way to attach scope to the rifle and I had to go with open sights which isn't ideal for me because my vision is such that I have a hard time focusing on those sights and the animal off in the distance. <laughs> if I'm looking at in the distance, everything up close is blurry. And um, Anyway, it worked out. I, I was able to hunt the moose with the open sights, but that's really the only thing I recall. I didn't miss foods from town or, you know, comforts, things like, a lot of people have told me they thought that they would miss. There wasn't anything like no, like like oh, three musketeers and like some kind of. No, no, I believe. No, that. I don't even eat that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah. when I live here. But um, no, I intentionally dispensed with everything I could. I didn't even bring um, a radio to listen to news. You could have shortwave radio out there. You know, you could pick up uh, Voice of America or whatever, and you could see what was going on in the world. And I decided, no, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want to be connected that way. So, um, no, if anything, I probably, there were a few other things that I could have lived without that I had out there, but not anything that I needed that I didn't bring. All right. Well, great question from Jesse Anderberg. Another question. This is off Reddit from ocean optimist. You're a master of the Arctic, but how do you think you would fare in other extreme environments such as deserts and or jungles? And going off of that, do you think a lot of your skills would carry over? So if you were Jungle Glen, how do you think you would do? I think every natural environment is unique and requires very specific, in-depth knowledge to really thrive in it. So... Traditional people that were hunting and gathering, living close to the land in the Amazon rainforest, knew a lot of stuff that people in the Arctic didn't know in terms of the plants, the animals, the risks of that environment that you have to know about, the general resources if you wanted to build shelter or do just about anything. Um, so if I was going to go into a desert or into a jungle, I definitely want to do my homework and learn as much as I could about that specific knowledge unique to that environment. But I do think that there are general um, modes of operating or principles that I apply to situations 
that I've developed over the course of my lifetime that would be very helpful in any environment. In fact, they're even helpful in the modern world. So that would, that would transfer. Okay. You know, um, simple things like, uh, when faced with a situation, it's important to take time to really understand it, not to act too quickly because you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. So I, I apply that all the time in life. It actually, um, came to me probably learning to fly airplanes. I remember I was working with a very experienced pilot, flight instructor. He was actually head of training at TWA Airlines at the time. And uh, captain of 747, 757, 767. And he told me one day, um, event, think, act, not event, react. He said, there are very few things, even when you're flying an airplane, where you're going to have to react just instantaneously. But if you do react too fast, you can get yourself a lot in a lot of trouble if you do the wrong thing. You want to understand what's going on. And uh, I apply that all the time. It's it's very useful principle. There are many different principles like that that you could use if you were in the jungle or if you were in you know downtown Manhattan or if you were up in the Arctic. Uh, that uh, I see sometimes people disregarding or, or not following those kind of principles and get themselves into trouble. I mean, I've seen people, for instance, in a wilderness situation, um, start to break through some, some ice. And instead of uh, backing up to where they had come, they instantly react by trying to race forward to get to where they're going <laughs> and get into thinner ice, you know, or uh, yeah, just different situations like that. It's really important to take a, a slow sometimes sometimes people think i'm too slow in how much time i'll spend analyzing a situation but uh, i like to learn as much about a situation as possible before making a decision about what course of action to take that's that's super interesting i i think i've found that even like in doing stand-up like sometimes you get a curveball thrown at you and like the crowd will, someone in the crowd maybe has a few too many drinks and they yell something out and you're, you're in a heightened state when you're on stage, like a kind of, you have that fight or flight um, reaction, just being up there, your adrenaline's going. And if you react too quickly, a lot of times your reaction can be um, aggressive, like for no, like you're not angry or whatever, but it's just, it, it's like this bark type feeling. Cause it's, I think, cause you're unexpectedly like no, when you get woken up in the morning, like by somebody and you don't, or you're sleeping and all of a sudden you get woken up and you're like, ah, like it's, it's this jarring type feeling. And I, I've found that like, if I take that pause and just sort of process the situation, my reaction's typically a lot nicer. And the goal is not to like, you know, make somebody feel shitty in that situation to say something funny. And I mean, right. it's, it's interesting. Cause I, I definitely think modern society is in a react, react, react mode constantly. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I find that interesting. You, you said, um, you would do a lot of research on the environments. Like what, where would you like hypothetically, Let's say you're going to the jungle 
like what would your process be for like what are you looking at what where are you going for information like how would you scope out something like that if you just purely hypothetically if if we were going to drop you in the jungle next week what would you do i'd look into the um, whatever had been learned about the people that lived in that environment in the past and maybe even still today who had lived really close to the land. Um, you know, hunter gatherers lived everywhere in the world that a hunter gatherer could possibly survive. Even the Arctic, which is the last place they went when they ran out of space everywhere else. So anywhere, a desert, a jungle, there've been people that have lived there for long periods of time, thousands of years in most cases. And they've acquired an amazing amount of knowledge. That's what I did when I decided I wanted to live in the Arctic. I studied a lot about the Inuit native people that had lived in the Arctic. And that's where I got a lot of information that was very useful once I got out there myself. Then the other thing is just the uh, modern scientists who have studied it from a little different angle. So, for example, knowing about the plants that grow is very useful information if you're trying to survive living close to the land. It's essential. You have to know what you can eat, what you can't eat, what's poisonous. You know, in, in a desert, you might want to learn about plants you can get water out of. There's, there's all sorts of um, information about plants that is very, very helpful to have. And if you don't have it through trial and error, reinventing the wheel yourself, you're going to get nowhere. It's too complicated. There's too many species of plants and there are too many hazards if you consume the wrong ones, for example. So why is, uh, in why is plant life so important when you ate primarily like a, a meat-based diet? Well, even here, I utilized for food about uh, more than 20 different species of wild plants. And if you were in a rainforest or, or some warmer more temperate environment, there'd be many more species of plants that you could utilize over a longer period of the year. And then of course, you know, plants are just essential. I mean, firewood is coming from a plant and even there, you know, if you want to build a fire by friction, you can't just grab any piece of wood from any species of tree. It's very specific in the Brooks range, for example, over time, I figured out what was the best way to build a friction fire. And I had to search for the best trees. Sometimes I'd walk from my camp a half a mile if I wanted to build a friction fire in order to get the right material because I needed to find a balsam poplar tree and they're not common up there. Most all the trees in that valley are white spruce. So, you know, plant knowledge is invaluable when you're even in the Arctic. Uh, and if you want to make any kind of tool or, um, you know, th there's different quality, different, Species of wood have different qualities, but also different parts of the same tree have different qualities, whether the wood grew in the spring or later in the summer, whether the you get the wood out of the root of the tree or the trunk. I mean, it, so there's a lot to know about plants in any environment. And it's relatively simple in Alaska because there are far fewer species of plant up here. But even here, I had a flora of Alaska about this thick probably the thickest book I had in my cabin there, probably a little thicker than my dictionary. And 
Uh, I think if I remember right, it might have had 1,700 species of plants that, you know, modern botanists had identified uh, in the region. And, you know, I studied and annotated that and had, I have files still that I've kept of notes that I took on the plants that I experimented with after reading about them in that flora. But if you were going into the rainforest, think of the diversity and uh, you wouldn't be able to study every single species, but you could learn the families and families of plants have certain characteristics. You'd know which ones to avoid, which ones are going to be more toxic. And that knowledge would be essential. So do you think you'd do well? If I had enough time to study enough, yeah. <laughs> problem is I'm running out of time to uh, study that much. I mean, it took me years to study the Arctic. And I remember thinking, uh, at times when, you know, it'd probably been a real long winter and not much sunlight, like, wow, maybe it'd be cool to go live in a rainforest. But then when I gave it a little deeper thought, I, I thought, you know, I'll never, it, it took me seven years to get up here and figure this all out from the time I decided to do it until I actually started living it. I mean, I can't, I can't go survive in, in the rainforest. I can probably do okay for a short period of time. But then the other thing is, you know, there, there are always people everywhere you go pretty much even even uh in rainforests even in deserts and different places if it's if the environment is such that a human can survive there there are probably humans surviving there even if they're relatively low density population like up in the brooks range and you have to integrate into that social milieu even in the brooks range i had to spend a lot of time getting to know where people were hunting and trapping and, you know, getting to know people in the native villages and whatnot in order to find the spot where I could actually go and not be stepping on people's toes and, and make a life for myself there. It wasn't easy. I mean, if you got plopped down in the wrong spot in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, you might end up, you know, getting yourself killed by somebody else that really wasn't very friendly to outsiders there. For sure. All right. So you said you had a, a story you wanted to bring on we're about at the hour mark so did did you want to share that or did you was there something else that you wanted to do instead well i could share a story but i was also thinking you know a lot of people have asked me uh about changes in my life recently mm -hmm. and uh, because i'm not living in the brooks range i've been visiting my camp occasionally but the last time i was up there was last fall and i was only there for a few days last fall um, so I've made a lot of changes. I'm basically, I'm getting modern. It's time for me to get more modern, Adam, and for a variety of reasons, but this is where I'm at in life. And I thought maybe I could show people some of these changes. I know a lot of people know that I haven't had a toilet for a long time. I, I, the last time I lived in, in an apartment with a toilet was, uh, in 2003, I went 17 years just squatting and pooping outside. And even here on my property in Fairbanks when I was in town. And last summer, I expanded uh, a little more here. I've been expanding over the years. I bought uh, my neighbor's property when they decided to move and his house where I am right now. Mm -hmm. And it's it's very different than what people are used to seeing me living in. Yeah. I, I, so Can you uh, walk us through it a little bit? I can show you a few things. Cool. I can show you a few things. Yeah. Um, and, and if, uh, if people are 
are listening. We do have the video of this on YouTube, so we'd love to have you watch along too. So go for it. So I'm really happy with this new place I got. It's still a small home. It's only a thousand square feet, um, but that's 10 times bigger than what I lived in for eight years of my life in the Brooks range. And it's five times bigger than the cabin that I built here when I started out in Fairbanks. And uh, so let me give you a, a glance out the window so you can see it's still pretty wintry here. We got oh, a lot wow. of snow. Yeah. You got and, the lifted uh, van too. Yeah. I got myself a lifted van uh, a couple of years ago, 2019. I picked that up, but uh, I got some exciting stuff here. You know, one way that I was able to live the life that I lived just economically was by not spending a lot of money for years. And I literally didn't buy furniture ever in my life until just a couple of years ago. I had one. <laughs> that little, runs in I the family, couple, by the way. I don't have very much either. <laughs> <laughs> I had a couple stumps. I remember when Trisha moved here and my little 200 foot cabin in Fairbanks was what we were first living in. Uh, I was sitting on some little stump and I said, uh, geez, you need a chair. And I went outside. She had just gotten here from Boston, you know, and I started up the chainsaw and I cut a piece of firewood into another little stool for her to sit on. And we used to eat on a cardboard box for a table. But, um, you know, um, one thing that happens when you start making a little more money than you need to live the way you're living is that you find some things to spend it on. And I started buying things. The first thing I got was I got myself a table. So I got a table and then I got, <laughs> I got a modern kitchen now and I love it because I love eating. I love food. So I upgraded when I bought this place. It's got, you know, Instapot. Nothing, nothing too fancy, but I got a modern kitchen. I love making yogurt. The instant pot is great for that. I still got a wood stove. And mostly what I heated with all winter long was this wood stove right here. Mm -hmm. But I do have full modern facilities. And uh, I want to show you some. I talk, people, a lot of people ask me about toilets. I got my little office right here, my standing desk. Oh, nice. Um, a lot of people, I need communications now. This is a big thing for me. I got to a stage in life where, hey, I had incredible experiences out in the wilderness. But what good is it if you don't share it? So. I'm working on things that are going to allow me hopefully to share some of what I learned with more people. And I need good communications to do that. So I've got, you know, full internet and all this. And, uh, I remember on Joe Rogan, I was talking about toilets and people wondering about my toilet situation. Cause I never had one for so many years, but I got myself a toilet. Look I at thought that. it was going to be gold. <laughs> <laughs> and I love this stuff. I mean, I really love, uh, I appreciate it so much because I went with, I got a shower behind there. I appreciate it so much because I went without this for so many years. And it was nice because when I would come to town, it was never a big transition. You know, I, I had electricity in town, which I didn't have on in the bush, but um, otherwise it was pretty similar. But now, you know, I got my bedroom here and yeah, it's a, uh, this room right here, just this bedroom is, is considerably bigger than my whole cabin was in the Brooks range. So do you nice sleep too. by yourself? Yes, I, I normally, well, not always, but typically, typically. Trisha's place is right next door. I got a little compound here, so I want to show you. My kids go back and forth. Um, 
not sure if you can see it, but there's a cabin right over in that direction through the woods, just about 40 yards door to door. It looks That's really Trisha's nice cabin. there, man. It is pretty nice. I like it here. I need I need um, a Fadman friend studio up there. Just give me one of the spare <laughs> spare spots. That's what the other cabins are for. Exactly. You can get a little extra bedroom in there. If you need a place to sleep, but I'll give you a whole cabin out. I I appreciate to, that. <laughs> yeah, I got five cabins now. Couple uh yeah, a couple of them I built myself, and then other ones uh, I acquired when I bought neighbor's property. Was it weird going back to using a toilet? Um, weird going back to using a toilet. Well, it was, Oh, did I show you? I got little footstools set up so that I don't have to, it's too high. The squatty potty. Um, yeah, it's kind of like what they call a squatty potty. It's, I, I use the little ones that they have for kids, you know, to reach the floor with their feet. And mm -hmm. I feel more comfortable with my feet up higher. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I squatted for 17 years outside when I was pooping. My, my brother Austin is, is a strong advocate for the squatty potty. He, he's tried to convince everyone in the family to get one and I'm a user. I, I support it. I, uh, I don't know if I believe everything that they advocate for, but it, uh, seems to work. Okay. I think that, uh, as you get older, it's good because you see old people in Asia that can squat just fine. And a lot of uh, people in America would probably have a hard time at that age. It's, and it's true. Probably because they, they squatted down every time they pooped for their whole life. For sure. Yeah, I believe <laughs> those that. Little, those little things that you do every day that keep you going. For sure. It's like now I have this shower with running water, but I still leave that water ice cold a lot of times when I take a shower because it's more invigorating. Just like up at the lake, I would just jump in the lake, you know, ice cold, and it really wakes me up. And I do the same thing here. I I got my elevated foot position on the toilet. I got my ice cold water in the shower, <laughs> trying to keep things, you know, uh, keep a little uh, bit of what I had in I, terms of uh, the challenge to everyday life. The jumping in the lake thing, like I get, but the jumping in the ice cold shower is so like, it's just, it's such a frustrating thing. Cause like it hits your body at different points. Like you have to fully commit, but it's hard to. So like sometimes you puss out and like you get some of yourself in there and not all the way. It's just, I, I, I haven't fully gotten into doing that. I've tried it before though. What I did notice when I cut my hair a couple months ago is that I didn't have as much insulation on my head. When that cold water would hit my head, I really feel it. For sure, man. For sure. So did do you want to go through a couple more questions or should we go into your story? Sure. Uh, what, do you have any – you had some interesting questions. I think. What do you, what do you got that looks really uh, like it might, might bring up see. something new? I like this question. Uh, the name wasn't provided, but it was something I kind of was curious about is like regards to life philosophy. Do you have like, do you have one? And if so, what is it? Life philosophy. Um, I think it's really life is just too complicated and too rich to encapsulate what's most important in a concise philosophy. <laughs> 
but I have principles I have values. And I think it's very much worthwhile to contemplate the values and the principles that guide you in life. Um, you know, philosophy is the love of wisdom and it's something that I think is needed. We need more, um, thought about philosophy and maybe more progress towards more wisdom. Look at how clever we are today, how incredible the technology that we've developed is in such a short time. We're very, very clever, but are we really that much wiser than we used to be? Do we really know um, how best to go about life and how best to use some of this technology we're developing? Uh, it's, it's a problem sometimes. So I think there, there's a process of uh, acquiring knowledge about the things that are most important. And a lot of times what it involves is integrating opposite ideas or seemingly opposite ideas as we go through life. Uh, like, I'll give you an example. Um, I've often talked about the importance of independence and freedom, personal freedom and autonomy to myself. And I think a lot of people that have been attracted to the stories I've shared about my life in the wilderness are attracted to that. And I have been able to, to live very free and to really have a degree of autonomy that a lot of times you would have difficulty achieving in the modern society. But at the same time, maybe because I've spent quite a lot of time alone and so isolated from other people. I really appreciate that interdependence that we all have upon one another. So it seems like a, a contradictory thing. And if you look at people's thinking today, they tend to, you know, put themselves that, Oh, uh, you know, they're a very individualistic type of thinker or they're they're more of a collectivist communist socialist type of a thinker mm -hmm. but really i don't see those as uh the the fact that independence and individualism definitely are very valuable and very desirable i don't see that as uh negating the fact that we are so interdependent if you study life on earth you look at species and animals and whatnot it becomes very clear that humans are the most social species of all we're the most dependent on each other all the time for almost everything and uh when you live alone you realize that even when i was living totally alone in the brooks range just in terms of material things i would have my my days would have been shortly <laughs> numbered if i hadn't had things like a rifle um if i hadn't had things like a, a knife and some modern tools and equipment that I never could have provided for myself. So I was completely dependent on society, even there for those sorts of material things. And in the past, before people had that kind of modern technology, the people who lived in that environment were even more interdependent on each other in order to hunt effectively. They had to operate in groups, they had to work together in order to corral animals and hunt them with cruder weapons. So why did you like when you were out there, there had to have been periods of time where you were craving that human interaction, right? For sure. For sure. Because that's the other thing about people is that 
uh, besides all the material stuff that we depend on each other for, the specialization of labor being so important to us, psychologically, our neurology, our, our brains is has evolved to interact with others, and it's totally necessary. I mean, the, the way we think about things, the ideas we have, the, the way we feel, our emotions are all regulated in part by our interaction with other people. So no man is an island. There's no question about that. And you can go for months by yourself if you want to. Some people have gone for years, but it's not the natural condition of a human. So to me, um, you know, uh, just one of many different principles or values in life that, that uh, have been important to me, and it's certainly not a philosophy of life, but one aspect of the way I approach life is uh, a lot of times to try and integrate these seemingly opposite ideas together as I go through life. And there are a lot of them, you know, that just different aspects of our personality that as we mature and learn more and become a little wiser, we realize that, you know, um, there are different aspects that actually have to balance each other. The more individualistic, you become, the more you really need to appreciate your interdependence. And the more you can, the, the better you can relate to people, the more helpful you can be to other people, the stronger you can stand on your own. So that's a. Uh, Dude, that is not what I thought you were going to say at all. Like at <laughs> all. And I really enjoyed hearing it though. Like I, I sort of have had similar thoughts myself where I'm like, yeah, no, I see this side and I see this side too, but I've, I've never been able to like articulate it that way. And yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that. That's, that was really cool. Um, do you want to sh share that story now? Cause we got, I don't oh. want to take your whole day up and stuff. So probably do a story. Then one other question, wrap things up. Okay, uh, one story I was thinking about sharing today, I've talked a little bit about this story in some other interviews, but I don't think I've really gotten into as many details, uh, is a story about one of my really early projects in life, which was when uh, I was 12 years old, I started hiking the Long Trail, which is a trail that goes from Massachusetts to Canada, the length of Vermont. It's about 270 miles. And when I was nine years old, I first became aware of that trail and I became obsessed with the idea of hiking it the whole distance. And I remember hiking up to the top of Mount Mansfield near where I grew up and seeing the sign. It said X number of miles to Massachusetts that way, X number of miles to Canada that way. And I was like, wow, I'm going to hike this trail. So um, I planned it for years. <laughs> That's just a little personality quirk of mine is I tend to be very methodical and do a lot of planning. So I had the long trail guidebook. I had copious notes. I had every single day of this journey planned, the food I was going to need to take, how much, you know, I was going to eat each day, everything calculated. I, I spent a few years calculating and planning this, you know, as my little hobby on the side of the other things I was doing. And when I was 12 years old, back in 1981 in June, it all came together, and my mother 
decided to drive, drive me down. You know, I asked her and we made a plan that she was going to drive me and my uncle who was going to do this with me, who I had enlisted to hike the long trail with me because I didn't feel confident doing it totally alone when I was 12 years old. Which uncle was it? Just out of curiosity. Um, Danny, my uncle, Danny, my mom's brother. Okay. So Danny had taken me hiking quite a bit when I was a kid. We used to go hiking around on Mount Mansfield in different places when I first started hiking. And then I started hiking alone on day trips and whatnot. But I don't think I had ever spent more than one night alone when I was out hiking at that age. And um, this was going to be a trip that was going to take weeks. So Danny was going to do it with me. So we got all packed up. And a lot of people told me that I wasn't going to be able to do this. I mean, I remember my grandmother saying, yeah, see you in a couple of days. And I remember uh, just other kids in the neighborhood coming over when I was packing my backpack and getting things set. My friends, you know, rode their bikes over and they were like, Glad you're never going to walk the length of Vermont. You know, what do you think? And uh, we drive down there. It was a big drive. It, it took more than three hours from my home to drive to the trail. And I had to walk back to this area of Vermont where I live, plus further to get up to Canada. So the whole project had been a fantasy up until that point. It was just a concept in my mind. Now it was becoming real. We're driving for hours down the road and I'm going to have to walk back further than this. <laughs> and, and, you know, we get there that afternoon down to Massachusetts and we unpack all the stuff. And uh, my uncle Danny and I wave goodbye to my mom and she heads off and uh, we're on our own down there and it's June and it's hot. I mean, it was, the sun was beating down and it just so happened that year that there was this terrible infestation of the tent caterpillars that live in the trees. They build these little nests and they defoliate the trees and cause a lot of damage, but they were just everywhere. And they were so many of them, they were dropping out of the trees like rain. You'd be walking <laughs> down the trail and you're getting hit with these caterpillars and it's like 90 it's like degrees. Locusts. The trail. Yeah. And right off the bat, the trail starts going right up this first mountain, you know, it's steep uphill. And I'm a little kid still when I'm 12 years old. I don't remember what I weighed, but I'm just like a skinny little kid. And I got this backpack that weighs 35 pounds and it was just hard. It was hard right from the beginning. It was, this wasn't a fantasy anymore. This was a reality. And uh, I started thinking that I'd bitten off more than I could chew. And we walked not so far, maybe a mile or two up this first mountain. And it was oh, thirsty, hot, sore muscles already. And I remember sitting down on a rock beside Danny and we started talking it over. And, uh, said gosh you know this this probably isn't going to work out and i i started to feel really bad i started crying and thinking oh my god you know my friends are right i'm gonna fail at this first big project i've really undertaken in my life and it was it was a pretty sad situation but danny was like i oh, don't worry about it don't worry what other people think you know we'll just walk back down to the town and we'll call back up family in in uh, jericho and have them come pick us up so that's what we did. We walked back down to the little village there and we went into a lobby of a hotel there and pick up the telephone and called up to my grandparents' house because my mom wouldn't have gotten back yet. She, we hadn't even hiked long enough that she made it home. And my aunt Mary was there at 
my grandparents' house that day, I think. And um, she said, well, I'll come pick you up. I'll, I'll, I'll leave shortly and, and drive down and pick you up. And it was a big drive. This is over three hours. Um, so we're kind of relieved about that. And of course, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of depressing to have been planning this for three years in such meticulous detail and giving up so soon, but it just seemed overwhelming. But luckily, just before Mary was to leave to come and pick us up, my mom got back and she heard what was going on and she said, no, she said, you are not going to pick them up. She said, no way. Glenn's been planning this for years and he's going to hike the long trail. He's not giving up this fast. (laughs) So uh, we get on the phone with my mother and I remember talking to her and saying, you know, you can't make me do this. And I mean, I was really upset and crying about it and telling her she had to come and get us. uh, But she said, no, Glenn, she said, you've been planning this all this time and you can do this. You just got to take more time, uh, spend the night there, check into that hotel tonight, you and Danny, and get up tomorrow and try it again. And I was really upset and told her, you know, you can't make me do it and whatnot, but um, we did check into the hotel because nobody was going to come pick us up. My mother made sure of that. She said, you are not going to get glad. <laughs> and uh, um, the next morning we got up, talked it over. Danny said, what do you think? You want to give it another try? I said, yeah. So we got a taxi back over the trailhead. And sure enough, that day we walked a lot further and it didn't seem to be quite so overwhelming. And uh, had to readjust my planned schedule that I had made you know, over the past few years that I was going to hike, I don't know, 20 miles a day or something. We cut that back a little bit <laughs> as reality set it. But we did, uh, that, that summer, uh, over, I don't remember what it was, maybe a week or so we hiked together up to Manchester, Vermont. And then we did decide, okay, we, we went enough for now time to go, go home, take a break. And then what I did was the next summer when I was 13, I asked my mom to drop, drop me off down there where we had left off the summer before totally by myself. I thought I was ready to actually start hiking alone. And I did start hiking alone. I hiked up to Rutland and then an aunt that I used to go hiking with quite a bit. She came and met me there and we hiked together. And eventually I ended up doing the whole long trail all the way to Canada. But if it hadn't been for my mom <laughs> getting back there and stopping Mary from coming and picking us up that day, I think a lot of things might have gone different in my life. I, I really do don't too. know. But it was it was such a big project, you know. And uh, if I had failed at it, then I think I would have had a different attitude. But that's when I started to learn about the real importance of sticking to something and how, you know, you just take one step at a time and you don't have to uh, necessarily succeed in the amount of time you thought you were going to succeed when you started something. And, you know, you don't have to do everything exactly the way you thought you were going to be able to do it. But if you stick to something and you put the energy into it, and you're willing to take the time you can pull it off eventually your mom sounds pretty tough though (laughs) i think that runs in the family a little bit by the way like i from what i've heard on the villeneuve side especially there's there's some badass like grinders (laughs) on that side of the family so yeah a lot of people say how could your mother ever let you go hiking by yourself when you were 13 years old. But I tell you, it was the best thing that ever happened to me, you know, like that next summer when she brought me down there alone. I mean, just having that freedom and 
you know, you asked me last time we talked about where I got my confidence from to do things. And part of it is just the upbringing I had and having a lot of freedom to do things that I wanted to do on my own that maybe some kids wouldn't have been allowed to definitely go after. Yeah. I think my dad, as you were telling me that story, he has told me that not, you know, your version of the story, but he told me growing up that in this kind of folklore of uh, your cousin, Glenn, like that was something that you did at a very young age. And, um, like earned a reputation at a, a young age for these kind of triumphant feats. So it's pretty cool. Um, spe- speaking of my dad, um, got like a couple, let's do two more questions. Um, you kind of okay. touched on this a little bit, but he, he wanted to know how do you make transitions in your life? And are you a planner? Like, do you, do you plan in detail and um, how have you made transitions in your life well and, and not so well? Well, I am a planner. As I told you, uh, that goes back to when I was a little kid mm-hmm. <laughs> planning things uh, sometimes excessively. I think that that really is just a personality characteristic and, When it comes to making a transition in life, the best approach is going to depend a lot on the person's personality because things like how planful you are, how methodical you are really depend a lot on these fundamental traits that are largely immutable. Um, If I wanted to plan less, I'd have a hard time doing it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And somebody that doesn't like to plan is not going to be served well by trying to plan things. You know, it's, you have to take into account your individual personality. Um, transitions. I mean, we all go through them and they're, they're different types of transitions. I'm not sure exactly what your father's thinking about when he asked that question. I think, um, he, so to be more specific, it was like when you moved from Vermont to Alaska, like how, uh, you talked about, you know, Stan, up on the border and, and, you know, being immersed in that culture and stuff, but sorry, go ahead. That, that type of a transition is the type of transition that we all enjoy and look forward to, which is you are making a decision to go to the next level, to expand your horizons, to do something new and exciting. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I plan a lot, but, uh, you know, it, it, when you're, when you're making that type of a transition, uh, that is a transition you're making by choice. Uh, usually it is a lot of fun. It's exciting and you have your setbacks along the way, but as long as you keep focused on the goal, you're going to get through. I think though, a lot of times, uh, the more difficult transitions that many people have to deal with are transitions that come about through, factors that are outside of their control or largely outside their control. So, you know, um, what are the big transitions that most people go through in life? Uh, you might lose your job. You might, um, maybe you're in a marriage or a relationship that you felt real secure in and it disintegrates and you got to get your bearings again. Um, you know, or you just, 
are getting older and you're not able to do the things that you used to be able to do once upon a time in your youth. So those are transitions that uh, can be a little more challenging. And I mean, I've had my challenging transitions too. And uh, at those times, I think it's really important I've found to recognize as quickly as possible what you have control over and what you don't have control over and as quickly as possible and as painful as it sometimes can be to accept what you don't have control over in life. And that can be hard. And, and there've been times when it took me a long time to do that. I didn't do that particularly well when I was younger and, um, it takes you back to the you, trail. <laughs> You're in the <laughs> hotel you lobby. Learn, <laughs> once you learn to, um, accept the inevitable, uh, you can reformulate goals and, and a vision that you can focus on. Uh, you also have to identify what you can most effectively do. You know, in what area can you be the most effective if you apply your energy there and then really focus on it? And yeah, I mean, the biggest, probably one of the biggest transitions for me in my life was, uh, getting separated from my ex-wife and you know at the time I had two young children and that's something that a lot of people go through and it can be really hard but um if you if you learn to accept what you can't change and you reformulate goals that you can work on uh you can get through a lot of things like that i mean think of the think of the the changes that people have to deal with in life i think about all the time people that you know, they're driving down the road like one day, like any other. And all of a sudden somebody screws up, runs into them. And the next thing you know, they have to transition to living the rest of their life in a wheelchair. I mean, mm -hmm. people have to go through big transitions all the time and deal with, with, uh, new circumstances. It's not easy, but if you can somehow keep yourself focused on the positive and accept uh, the inevitable changes that life throws at you. I think that's the best, the best way to approach it. Yeah. I like that. How do you feel about being about getting older? Cause you're pretty, you've been a very youthful person throughout your life, you know, like, is there yeah. like, have you, are there aspects that you like and aspects that you don't like so much or where are you at with it? Well, uh, there, there are always pluses to things, but, uh, I mean, who wants to get old? I fight it as hard as I can. It <laughs> I mean, seems I, like, I, I mean, I run, I run almost every day. I work out almost every day. I do yoga. I, um, you know, only eat wholesome food. I definitely don't want to age uh, any faster than I absolutely have to. Um, and I think there's a lot you could do to to prolong the span of life where you feel youthful and are capable of doing things. But there are limits and you accept them and then you try to focus on the advantages. Like, for example, the advantage of getting older generally is you get a little wiser. You learn a lot along the way. Um, deal with situations better than you used to be able to. I think that's the advantage of getting older and also being able to to offer more to other people than you could when you were younger. I mean, what do you get to offer when you're 18 years old to other people? You know, not, not so much vitality <laughs> <Usually>. or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a theory that like 
I I mean, just being around so many comics and stuff, like I, I honestly think that laughing a lot keeps you very young. Like you, you, yeah. you around people that are laughing and joking around a lot. Like it, you can see it in their face. You can just, it, it, uh, and I, I'm not sure about it. Like I don't have any science to it, but I just, I feel like oh. for my age, some of the people that don't have as much fun as, as I get to, like they just, it, yeah. it, I, I'm like, Hey, you look old. Like it's, it's just, not, <laughs> oh, there's, it, there's no question. There's no question about it. I mean, that's the great thing about comedy. It, yeah, it does make you feel younger when you're happy and you're laughing. And doing this stuff, like, I just, it's really fun to sort of, like, capture a moment in in a bottle. And, like, you know, it's people can come back to it. I mean, the last episode we recorded, it was up to, like, 3,000 views on YouTube. So it's like, man, this is pretty cool. People are liking it. So I'm... I really appreciate yeah. you coming on. I guess my last question before we go is, and if you if you can't talk about it in detail, totally fine. Um, but is there is there something next for Glenn? Oh, there's something next. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I can't share much uh, in the way of detail at all. But I am very interested in developing another television show. And I have been working quite a lot on this with some very talented people. And I am hopeful it's uh, far from certain, but I'll just say this. If it does come to fruition, it's going to be exciting. <laughs> if it does, I, I think we got to meet one, one other time and talk about the concept. Cause I'm, I'm very intrigued by it. And yeah. I get, well, I get, I'd, I'd love to share more, but you know, it's a competitive industry and, uh, ideas are valuable and everybody's trying to come up with an original idea. So we got to think about protecting intellectual property. hundred percent. I get but, that. Uh, <laughs> totally understand. Yeah. But I, I know a lot of people when they were asking questions on this is where's Glenn, where's Glenn, what's he's doing next. So I, yeah. you know, I'd love to do a TV show. It's, it's not easy. It's, you know, a lot of people want to make TV shows and you, you got to have the right concept and, find somebody that wants to buy it. But, um, that's, that's what I've been putting a lot of energy into lately. Well, I'm excited to see what happens. Um, just want to say before you go, thank you so much for coming back on, man. It, it, uh, I always love talking with you and I know all my listeners love it and, um, been able to get some of your folks to check it out too. So really appreciate that. And, um, yeah, I, is there anything that you would you want to plug or promote before we end? Just your podcast, Adam. I think it's great. I, I mean, I really enjoy talking to you. I like podcasts in general. I love these long-form conversations that a lot of people are having now on the Internet. So I'm looking forward to watching more of your material, too. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely think that the episode with Carl, the, back, uh, the bike packer, that's up your alley yeah. like it. Yeah. I haven't checked it out yet, but I intend to. Yeah. If you do let me know, cause I, I, he's a big fan of yours and, uh, he, he watched the last episode we did together. So, um, definitely interesting guy and really fun. But before we go, just want to say thanks again to everyone listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share this podcast with a friend and to rate and subscribe to us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at FNF pod. We're going to leave you with Jaga 
I just make the waves, I don't write them I can hear the lyrics in my spirit as I write them Why you wanna walk and talk just like them? I can't get caught up in all the hype and the excitement I just make the waves, I don't write them I can hear the lyrics in my spirit as I write them Why you wanna walk and talk just like them? I can't get caught up in all the hype and the excitement Welcome to my wave pool, my wave pool 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 Welcome to my pool, so